Ladies and gentlemen, I'm in a weird state right now. I feel like with all the with all the climate shit going on, with all the oh, to quote Jaden Smith, the geopolitical state of the world right now, I feel like I'm just vibing through life. In other words, Paul Kemi's Chuck D. Bring the noise. FM Podcast Network. I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. I don't know what you guys do on the day-to-day, right? You probably have a nine-to-five, probably commute somewhere, right? That's, you know, most people, the rat race, right? And I feel like I'm in a state, and I don't know if you guys feel the same, right? Um, maybe you have at some point in your life, but whatever, right? I'm in a state where, right now where I feel like I'm just vibing through life. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just taking it day by day most of the time, right? And whatever happens, happens. You know what I mean? I just feel like I'm. I feel like that's what's going on. Like I feel. I feel even though I have <coughs> goals and dreams and stuff like that, I feel like they're. And not to not to sound cynical, but I feel like they're so far away. Most of them, um, you know, the the large ones anyway. I feel like they're so far away. I've kind of just not given up in a sense, right? Because I'm still, you know, working towards them in some fashion. Um, but I'm just not sweating them as much as I used to. You know, they're still there in the back of my head, right? They're, they're still there. I know what I want to do in life. Da 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 da. I feel like the, with everything going on, it just it seems it just seems futile sometimes, you know. I'm not, and I'm not saying this in a. I don't feel like I'm saying this in a uh, in a cynical way or a nihilistic way, right? I'm not. I'm not. Don't feel like I'm thinking about it like that. I'm actually kind of enjoying it in some ways. Um, so last um, last weekend, I went out, and um, I kind of went out with no expectation of actually. Um, what's the word not not enjoying is probably the wrong word but like just just i'm like i wasn't expecting it to be you know a good night right i was expecting it to be fine right <laughs> just you know do something go out do this go home right just get, just get something maybe in the middle right have a couple of drinks whatever see a few people right not nothing nothing too large right but as the day as the night the day to the night went um it just it just increasingly got more fun as the night went on, it was just really, it was just really weird, and it just things happening and bumping into people I thought I'd never meet, right, um, and I haven't seen in years or whatever, and it's just, and it's just cool, it's just cool, it's just vibes, and I don't know, man, it just, uh, it was just really interesting. It was just really interesting how that night went. Um, I didn't expect it to be so, it, it was so spontaneous and how. And coincidental, a pleasure, uh, a, a, a pleasure-filled coincidence-filled um, uh, night. It was just really, it was really nice. And um, you know, I just feel like, isn't that what kind of just life is supposed to be about, right? Where you just, you know, you might do something, and it might be, you know, the best night ever, or it might be the worst night ever. But you take that risk. It's the same way as waking up in the morning. You, you might. Go to work and say it, 
harrowing might happen, or you might have something good happen, but you just you just vibe through life most of the time, right? So that's that's kind of my headspace right now. A very a very contemplative one, but not exactly in a nihilistic way that I might have had previously when I've had because I've had this mood before, um, but most of the time it is um, in the previous times it's probably been a bit more darker. Um, but yeah, now I'm just seeing. I'm just you know, just wake up. I know I'm gonna do that day. Uh, I know I'm gonna. I got some stuff I want to do this month, and uh, you know, I just hope everything goes well. You know, what I mean? and just, uh, just <laughs> again, just vibing through life. It's it's interesting. I don't know. But anyway, let's begin with the show. Let's get on with it. Uh, we've got two film and TVs, tech and a sports topic. Um, and uh, yeah, it's gonna be. I mean. Celebrating, I want to celebrate life with this one, honestly. Um, you know, I, I, I really, I really do, but I feel just compelled to for, for no particular reason apart from just I respect the people and um, I just feel like it's a good opportunity to just celebrate the lives of certain people. Um, there's been a lot of deaths, um, notably in the past uh, week, uh, week. So, you know, I, just, I, just, I want to shout out at least two. Um, so, Let's get on with it. For us before we begin, email Twitter, Discord, Nick, all that, all that, all that in the full show notes. Please go spin the articles for yourselves, give them a read for yourselves, and support the writers to make this show possible. And with that said, let the music drop. And let's get into the show. In a week where Rebecca Vardy loses libel case against Colleen Rooney, uh, NBA legend Bill Russell dies aged 88, Nichelle Nichols, iconic actress Nichelle Nichols dies aged 89, England win the women's Euro 22, and lastly Al-Qaeda, is it Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda? Because I used to, I used to, be, I'm used to, back in the day when, it, you know, when, when Al-Qaeda was popping, people used to say Al-Qaeda. And American said Al Qaeda, so I don't know how to say it, and I try not to relate her uh, to rely on uh, the US to say um, you know shit in the Middle East properly because they say they say Qatar properly, but they don't they don't do the they don't put the inflection on it like I just did, right? They don't do, they don't say Qatar, they say Qatar. It's just no, it's just ah, just hurts my ears, and I'm not even from there. Anyway, mention Bill Russell. And Nichelle Nichols, and that's what we're going to talk about for the uh, first um, first two segments. We shall begin with Mr. Bill Russell, um, legend in the basketball game, um, the game basketball, and uh, Boston sports. Um, a very uh, <laughs> tall, in a lot of ways, character. A very tall figure, um, kind of like the father of the NBA in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of inspired a lot of people. Including the writer for this particular article I'm about to read, um, one of my goat personally in terms of you know basketball, uh, Mr. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and uh, he has his own Substack, and um, he may put some words on for Bill Russell. There's actually been plenty of uh, good talk um, encapsulating Bill Russell's life. Um, there's a couple of good ones from uh, uh, Howard Bryant. Um, on ESPN, uh, I think I can. Uh, uh, Marcus Thompson did one via the Athletic. That was apparently good. Um, so you know, there's plenty. Of, there's been plenty of good um, eulogy, so to speak, um, for the legend that is Bill Russell. 
But I thought there is nobody, anybody could write those, you know what I mean, where they kick off the stats and the um, and uh, the the connection to Boston sports and basketball as a whole and America as a whole, being black in America in the 60s. Um, anyway, but you, you know what I mean, anybody can write about that. Kareem can only write in, nobody can write how in Kareem's experience, you know, and I feel like Kareem has a great experience. Um, and uh, outstanding just life on the face and um, I think he's a good writer as well so let's get into it this is called The Bill Russell I Knew for 60 Years and with artwork by Chuck D by the way so shout out to Chuck D um, happy belated birthday um, when I learned that my friend Bill Russell had died I tweeted this response quote Bill Russell was the quintessential big man not because of his height but because of his the size of his heart in basketball he showed us how to play with grace and passion in life, he showed us how to live with compassion and joy. He was my friend, my mentor, my role model, unquote. That's as much as, as much truth as I could fit into 272 characters with spaces. But there is a whole lot more truth and love and respect in my 60-year relationship with Bill Russell that I want to share so the world can know him, uh, not just as one of the greatest basketball players to ever live, but as a man who taught me how to be bigger as a player and as a man. There will be many biographical articles extolling Bill's many achievements as a player and as an activist. Which you, I just said, eh? The records, the stats, the awards, etc. This is not that kind of article. This is simply about Bill and me and two long lives that intertwine for six decades. Oh, I usually don't read the subheadings, but I feel like I um, am obliged to on this one. So this one's called My First Meeting with Bill Russell uh, Went South Fast. Uh, I first met Bill Russell in 1961 when I was a 14-year-old freshman at Power Memorial High School. I had just arrived at the school gym for team practice, only to find the Boston Celtics practicing instead. I was surprised to see a professional team in our gym, especially the NBA champions for the last three seasons in a row. As I found out later, because our gym was only 12 blocks from Madison Square Garden and near two several hotels, we were convenient for teams to practice. Uh, as I wandered into the gym, I saw, sitting casually on the bleacher bench, reading the New York Times, Bill Russell, the Secretary of Defense himself, my personal hero. I also saw my coach, Jack Donahue, chatting with the Celtics coach, Red Auerbach. Being naturally shy and unnaturally polite, I decided to head downstairs to the locker room and wait patiently until they were done. Maybe I could find a copy of the Times to read too. Lou, come here. Coach Donahue called to me. I gulped. Me? I shuffled over to Coach Donahue, who introduced me to Coach Auerbach. Coach Auerbach gestured at Bill Russell. Hey, Bill, come here. I want you to meet this kid. Bill Russell dipped down his newspaper and looked at, looked at me over with a frown. Then he snorted, I'm not getting up just to meet some kid. <laughs> I shrank to about six inches tall. Oh, wow. Only six inches? Oh, poor you. Um, I just wanted to run straight home. Auerbach chuckled, don't let him get to you, kid. Sometimes he can be a real sourpuss. He grabbed my wrist and walked over to Russell. Bill, be nice. This is the kid who just might be the next you. Bill looked at me again, this time taking a little longer. I was already seven foot, seven feet, two inches taller than him. Uh, oh, seven, seven feet, comma, two inches taller than him. Okay, right, that was, <laughs> that was confusing. All right, cool. I stuck, my, I stuck out my hand. How do you do, Mr. Russell? Pleasure to meet you. He didn't smile, but his demeanour had softened just a little. He shook my hand. Yeah, yeah, kid. That's how I met my childhood hero. They say you should never meet your heroes. That is mostly disappointing, disillusioning, or disheartening. 
but that wasn't my experience. I was thrilled. He spoke to me, and I thought I saw his eye, in his eyes a recognition of someone like him who had a passion for the game that burned deep and hot and bright. Or maybe that's what I wanted to see. Either way, it fueled me to strive harder to be more like him. How Bill Russell inspired me as a player. After that first meeting, every time I ran into him, he was more and more open and forthcoming. At each meeting, I made it my mission to try and make him laugh. He had a high-pitched giggle of a laugh, something between a warbling goose and a praying donkey, and nothing brightened the room like his laugh. When Bill laughed, you could not laugh along. It would be a while before we met again, but I continued to study Bill Russell the way Oppenheimer studied Einstein. I even had a 1956 photo of Bill soaring high into the air during an NCAA high jump while attending the University of San Francisco. The image of Bill with his hands splayed out in front of him as if he were flying made me think of that with hard work, with hard work, I could also reach those heights. Well, that must feel like, I wondered, determined to find out. In the photo, Bill has only one shoe on, the other foot covered in a loose sock. To me, that showed his commitment and focus. Nothing could shake his will, power to whim. I realised then how much work I had to do to complete compete with athletes like him. Um, the picture is on uh, on here as well if you want to see it. There was something else about that photo that affected me even more than Bill's amazing performance. If you do a search of the photo, you'll find that most versions are cropped to frame Bill flying up over the bar. Yet, if you see the complete photo, you see about three dozen white people watching him. Most of them frowning, glaring, or just staring. But standing beside the post is one young black kid with a smile on his face. A kid who suddenly saw the possibilities for achievement, despite a crowd of mostly white faces who may be who maybe saw the future of sports in America and didn't like what they saw. So I'm trying to look at the... F I'm, I'm just briefly looking at the photo again. I actually do see that black kid. And he's <laughs> that was actually kind of cool. Uh, I was that smiling kid, at least in my mind. And that photo inspired me to spend much of my high school career emulating Bill's playing technique. I attended these games whenever the Celtics played the Knicks at Madison Square Garden. And I would watch them four to five years... Uh, yeah, four to five years when they practiced at my school gym. I learned how to dominate in the paint by applying defensive pressure. If you can deny the opponent any rebounds, it's easy to have a fast break game. If you can effectively block their shots, you force them to adjust their game into an offense they're not as uh, familiar with. I watched him, watching him, I realized that Bill seemed to know what each player was going to do before they did. He anticipated every move like a chess master, then sprang into the air to block them before they uh, knew what was happening. He didn't play one-size-fits-all defense. He customized his defense. I say defense and defense in, in different contexts, so I don't know. Uh, defense to fit each player. Those were the teachings of Bill Russell, whether or not he knew it, and I learned his teachings well. To better understand those lessons, watch this. There's a YouTube um, uh, called Bill Russell Blockheart, so go spin that if you want. How Bill Russell inspired me as an activist. This, uh, this, 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 side of, this side of them, for me personally, fascinates the fuck out of me, because these two dudes, and, you know, Ad, Ad Ali in there as well, um, they are so fat. They're such fascinating people. Like I just, they, they were at the top of their game in their respective sports, right? Um, uh, revered in such ways, but they were also just supremely smart and supremely active in the social societal um, ill space, and uh, talking about that. And and it's just amazing to think about. Anyway, let's continue. I always knew I wanted to be active in civil rights, but I didn't always know how I would do that. I had attended some anti-war and civil rights protest rallies while at UCLA, 
but I knew that wasn't enough. In 1967, when I was 20 years old, football legend turned Hollywood actor Jim Brown asked me to join what became known as the Cleveland Summit. We were a group of mostly black athletes, including Bill Russell, Carl Stokes, Walter Beach, Bobby Mitchell, Sid Williams, Curtis McClinton, Willie Davis, Jim Shorter, and John Wooten. Our task with determining the sincerity of Muhammad Ali's refusal to be drafted by the US Army based on his religious views as a Muslim. Several of the group were ex-military and did not look sympathetically on Ali's stance. Bill was the most famous member of the summit, other than Jim Brown and Ali, but he never, but he never tried to leverage that, influ- that to influence the rest of us. His approach was logical and dispassionate, encouraging us to listen with open minds to what Ali had to say. That reasonable approach proved to be much more effective than trying to sway us. He knew Ali could speak eloquently and passionately for himself, and that if we were open, we would see the truth in what he said. That was a huge lesson in humility and leadership that guided me for many years after. The Bill Russell of the Cleveland Summit was who I wanted to be when I grew up. In fact, the Bill Russell of the Cleveland Summit made me grow up uh, right then and there. As I had emulated him on the court, I chose to also emulate him off the court. I read interviews with him, and I read his 1966 autobiography, Go Up for Glory, about his experiences growing up in segregated America and the obstacles he faced as a black man in America, despite his fame and accomplishments. What especially struck home was his refusal to become the stereotypical angry black man that many tried to force him to be. Instead, he chose to focus on finding a path to change and uh, social, social justice uh, through specific actions and programs. Years later, when uh, some in the press tried to characterize me as the angry black man, I tried to follow Bill's rational example to remain calm and join the fight by championing specific solutions rather than just rage and shake my fist. Although sometimes the frustration is called for a good fist shaking, uh, then, as Bill taught me, it's back to doing the hard work that actually brings change. Me and Bill as old men. I was 67 years old when I finally got up the courage to ask Bill for something I'd wanted since meeting him 53 years ago. His autograph. Bill, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird and I were shooting a commercial for AT&T. We had all had so much fun that day, joking around with each other that I thought it was the perfect time to spring into action. It's also another YouTube uh, uh, clip if you want to see it. We were taking a break between filming. I saw him sitting comfortably in a chair, sipping coffee. I stalked him the way he taught me how to stalk players right before leaping up to block their shot. I got closer, a big disarming smile on my face. He looked up, unsuspecting. Hey, Bill, I said. Wonder if you do me a favor. He just looked at me. Hmm. I whipped out the jersey from behind my back, his home jersey from the Celtics, number six. I held up a black Sharpie. Mind autographing this for me? He gave me a long look, took the jersey and Sharpie, signed it, handed it back. Thanks, I said. Sure, kid, he said. He had continued to call me kid since our first meeting when I was 14. I, was, <laughs> I think that was his good-natured way of reminding me that he was there first and I would always be following his giant steps. And that's just fine. With, that was just fine with me. The last time I saw Bill was last summer at a family barbecue at Lakers headquarters. He saw me walk in toward him, smiled and said, hello, kid. I smiled back and tried to think of how I would make him laugh. And that's it. That's the entire article. And um, it's just, I just love shit like that, man. I just love shit like that. I revere someone like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar so much in terms of um, being really good at something and people, you know, constantly talk about him in that fashion, you know, obviously basketball, but I just admire his writing as well. And also just the... Uh, you know, the dedication to 
being more than just a sports person because I feel like when you're and and this I can't relate to obviously but I I I I I respect the I respect the conviction of this um, mentality of you know when 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 someone's in sports right unlike me um, they constantly and I've talked to a few people you know Tiana Madison, of course, um, nice nobly. I really want to get back on the show, um, but I'm trying to. I, I want to read the rest of her book. <laughs> I keep, I keep doing other things. I'm just like, damn, I'm never going to get this in- second interview because I want to read her book before before I um, ask her again. Um, but anyway, you know, I talk to talk to her. I you know regularly watch a lot of sports, right? And uh, you know how they talk about it and retirement in general is fascinating because. Now it's just, um, you know, most of the time it's just investments, you know, black capitalism, right? And I'm not feeling, I don't feel that. But Kareem did it in a different way where he retired, right? And even before he retired, he was, you know, friends with fucking Bruce Lee and was in a film with Bruce Lee and fought Bruce Lee on camera. It's fucking sick. He was on Aeroplane, like one of the greatest comedies in the Western world. And he did that during his career. And, you know, now after his career, he's a writer he, you know obviously i've just read from his Substack. if you want to go subscribe to that go ahead and you know he does other things as well and it's, it's just respect i just respect someone like that that didn't rest on the fact that he was a good basketball player he's so much more than that um i really want to talk to him about jazz for, you know because i feel i've i think i watched the um i think it was an uh, episode i don't think it was on iconoclast i don't know if you if you remember that show it's like a it's like a show where two people you know notable figures um but in different worlds um so one of them was like i think dave Chappelle and maya angelou and that was really fascinating it was from like 10 or so years ago i think and uh one of them was i think Ch- i think it was actually chuck d and, <laughs> and kareem um I'm, correct me if i'm wrong but uh yeah he was on there and uh i was also a documentary as well um, on HBO that was very good so uh, yeah I just I just love the guy he's just a very fascinating person I'd love to meet him and uh, you know he and the fact that he emulated Bill Russell makes Bill Russell an even more fascinating character on the face um, so regardless of that anyway enough of that R.I.P. Bill Russell absolute legend in so many ways and um, that won't be the only one we're talking about today So he bid a live long and prosper to Miss Nichelle Nichols, um, who uh, died aged 89, as I said at the start of the show. Um, and uh, I, I saw this article, um, this I mean, kind of an obit, not really, but it's more of an opinion piece, um, from Mickey Kendall, um, who's a writer, uh, occasional feminist, according to this <laughs> this, uh, this little bit of bio here. Um, and it's so it's so sad, actually, think, uh, looking at this now, because... Um, yeah, actually, she actually had her last um, piece on the Guardian was 27 weeks ago, and it was about Nichelle Nichols, and it was about uh, a free Nichelle uh, protesters want to liberate Star Trek actor from conservatorship, and uh, and now and now there's this um, which I'm gonna read. It's called Nichelle Nichols was my hero and a groundbreaking figure for Black women, and uh, that just makes me sad to think about how you know she was in a conservatorship, you know, until she died. Um, but regardless, um, let's give this a spin. 
Nichelle Nichols was my hero. Her death on Saturday at 89 was the passing of an icon who changed the world and then kept fighting to make the future in our imaginations and in reality a better, brighter place for black girls. When I was a kid around 8 or 9, I would watch reruns of Star Trek and imagine myself as a space traveller. I even loved the fact that our names were so similar. To me, she was the epitome of cool and I nearly and I eagerly watched every moment she was on screen. But because I was a kid, I didn't really grasp how groundbreaking her work on the show was, as by the time I saw it, she was one of many images of black womanhood. For me, she was one of uh, she was the one that resonated because I was fascinated by space, but of course I saw everyone from Diane Carroll to Jackie Henry on screen. My world was one where images of black womanhood were everywhere. It wasn't that I thought racism didn't exist, but the world in which black women were only depicted as maids was never my reality. The media landscape uh, that would have taught me uh, that was uh, that there was nothing for girls like me, but servitude ch- was changed by Nichelle Nichols. When Nichols broke those barriers for black women as Lieutenant Uhura on the original Star Trek, I didn't exist yet. And though I can study Jim Crow and can understand in the abstract how hard it was for her, I will never know the world that couldn't uh, that couldn't stand the sight of her. Uh, but because of her, I feel no need to dim my light. And that's true for so many black women in America and around the world. In, cons- in conversation with uh, the writer N.K. Jemisin after the news broke, we talked about how sad it is and about Nichols' impact on Jemisin's career. Quote, Without Michelle Nichols, I might have never been a writer, certainly not the kind of writer I am now, she said. And that's the thing about trailblazers like Nichols. They create an environment in which the path they opened is widened by those that they affected. Jemison is widely regarded as one of the best writers of our generation. And though Nichols may not have realised what she wrought in the moment, I hope she knows in some beautiful afterlife that she helped make that possible. We talked about her impact on us specifically, but we joined Whoopi Goldberg, Mae Jemison, and millions of others in grieving and gratitude. Though Nichols always gave credit to the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. for talking her out of leaving the show, I am quietly convinced that Nichols stood her ground because she wasn't going to let herself be forced out. She famously had no problem standing up to William Shatner on set when they butted heads, and in later years she advocated heavily for more diversity in the space program, telling ABC Audio in a 2016 interview, quote, NASA recruited me, hired me to recruit women and minorities for the space shuttle program, and until that time, there were no people of colour even considered, she explains, adding with a laugh. And after that, we were all over the place. I interviewed quite a few young women uh, that were interested in that and simply didn't uh, think they had the chance, had a chance. And one interview with me, uh, <laughs> and they knew they did, unquote. For decades after Star Trek ended, Nichols was known for being encouraging, strong and razor sharp. She was funny and sweet, and her work was always a presence in any conversation about science fiction or media representation. She was a cultural force that no one could ignore even when she wasn't technically the focus in a conversation about the importance of inclusion and diversity. Her impact on others ran so deep that she was cited as an example by academics, activists, and anyone who knew anything about the world as it had been and wanted to make the world the best it could be. It was one. Uh, it's one of the reasons fans struggled with the idea that she would not always be available to meet at conventions or that she might need more support and protection as she aged. When the conservatorship was announced, it was a blow to many, but given what her manager was allegedly able to do with her, finance, uh, to do her finances, I can't help but wish uh, we could have shown up for her 
the way she showed up for all of us. I can only hope that she, at the end she knew she was loved and revered. Nichelle Nichols gave us the future. What we make up, what we make of it, is up to us. Uh, but we were lucky to have had her to have been graced for as long as we were uh, with the, her spirit and love. Perhaps the best way we can honour her is to strive as she did uh, to make the world better, to remake our future into something utopian where the real black girl magic is black girls' dreams coming true without having to battle so hard to be seen as human and worthy of respect and care. Michelle Nichols was the hero that we needed and hopefully we can all live up to the gifts she gave us. And that's the entirety of that. Um, and yeah, man, I just... Um, I kind of wanted to just big up these two in particular. Um, and um, I feel that, you know, in, in, in their own ways... Um, inspiring people you know nk jemison for those who don't know she's a, a sci-fi writer um a fiction and um has won just plenty of plenty of awards for it and stuff like that um amazing world builder right and um you know that's 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 a direct link right there you know that's a like she said like jemison said in the quote she probably wouldn't have written if hura didn't exist if nichelle nichols didn't exist and have that role in star trek um sci-fi while as a as a whole I, I think sci-fi has kind of been you know enveloped by you know superhero movies in some way and uh you know i don't think people see superhero movies as sci-fi in the fashion of you know a star trek back in the day um or you know i don't know the yorville <laughs> right <laughs> as a more contemporary example right um but you know it's at the moment, sci-fi is just in a spot where, um, you know, it's it's not as it's not as hard to imagine things as it was back then. Um, watching Star Trek, and I don't watch Star Trek. My mum used to watch Star Trek. She occasionally watches it now and again um, when it's on, um, and she's in the mood for it. And you know, I see it, and I and you, when you watch it, and you understand the time it was made. It, it is interesting to watch um, as ahead of its time as it probably was, culturally especially. Um, you know, first interracial kiss in, on, on television, right? Stuff like that. Um, it's interesting thinking about sci-fi in its place right now. And it's good that Nichelle Nichols had a spot, an important place in that um, sci-fi history. And uh, I just wonder what the next watershed moment will be because I do feel sci-fi can have that place um, in the in the film and TV lexicon. It still can do that. It can still push boundaries. But I'm just not sure what kind of boundaries that could be pushed. Because seeing, you know, interracial kissing is just like, okay, <laughs> right. And, you know what I mean? Just, that's, that's nothing. There's nothing now. But what is something that will just make someone clutch their pearls at this point? I don't know what that is. But I'd love to find out. But, you know, these things don't happen unless someone gets that, uh, gets that recognition. And Nichelle Nichols was that. And, um, you know, like, um, like the article said, um, she did a lot for black girls. And um, that's all the respect that can be, that's all the praise that can be heaved. If you are able to lift a whole, you know, fucking the most disrespected... Um, part of society especially in the US 
I mean, what, what, <laughs> die happy, man. That's a, di- that's a die happy moment. Um, so shout out to, um, RIP to Miss Nichelle. And this one came through um, earlier in the day as I record um, to uh, Bristol civil rights leader Roy Hackett, uh, best known for his role in the 1963 Bristol bus boycott. He died age 93 today as I record, so um, you know, yeah, I repeat him as well. But we continue with uh, film and TV, and um, this is about I talk, I you know, reference Marvel, and we're going to talk about Marvel a bit. Um, There's actually a long read I'm I'm gonna try and get out at some point in the next couple of weeks. Um, it's it's probably it's it's going to be timely for the next few years anyway, regardless of when I do it. But I still want to get out. Uh, but this one is a much shorter version of that in some ways. Um, this is a anonymous kind of like article as told by Chris Lee, told to by Chris Lee um, via Vulture. It's called "I'm a VFX artist and I'm getting tired of getting quote pixel fucked by Marvel." Um, so this is obviously in uh, reference to the new Marvel slate. Um, that came out during uh, Comic Con in San Diego, and uh, they've got a fuck ton on in the next few years, including two Avengers films in one year. So, yeah, and uh, you know, if you if you if you stay tuned into the um, uh, the, the the film and TV space, you may un- you may understand that you know there's some shows right now that and films that have just they just have shoddy work done. And that's no disrespect to the VFX artists. It's just because they're getting crunched, um, simply put. And uh, I don't think they're unionized. And that's probably the issue there. Um, but anyway, let's get into this um, anonymous piece. Uh, let's see what they're saying. It's pretty well known and even darkly joked about across all the visual effects houses. That working on Marvel shows is really hard. When I worked on one movie, it was almost six months of overtime every day. I was working seven days a week, averaging 64 hours a week on a good week. Uh, Marvel genuinely works you really hard. I've really, I've had uh, co uh, workers sit next to me, break down, and start crying. I've had people having anxiety attacks on the phone. The studio has a lot of power over the effects houses, just because it has so many blockbuster movies coming out one after the other. If you upset Marvel in any way, there's a very high chance you're not going to get those projects in the future. So the effects houses are trying to bend over backwards to keep Marvel happy. To get work, the houses bid on a project. They are all trying to come in right under one another's bids. With Marvel, the bids will typically come in quite a bit under, and Marvel is happy with that relationship. But it saves uh, because it saves it money. But what ends up happening uh, is that all Marvel projects tend to be understaffed. Where I would usually have a team of ten VFX artists on a non-Marvel movie. On one Marvel, on one Marvel movie, I got two, including myself. So every person is doing more work than they need to. The other thing with Marvel is it's uh, famous for asking for lots of changes throughout the process. So you're already overworked, but then Marvel's asking for regular changes, <laughs> way in excess of what any other client does. And some of those changes are really major. Maybe a month or two before a movie comes out, Marvel have us change the entire third act. It has really tight turnaround times. So yeah, it's not just a great situation all around. Uh, One visual effects house could not finish the number of shots and reshoots Marvel was asking for in time, so Marvel had to give my studio the work. Ever since, that house has effectively been blacklisted from getting Marvel work. 
Part of the problem problem comes from the MCU itself. Just the sheer number of movies it has. It's set days, and it's very flexible on those days. Yeah, yet it's quite willing to do reshoots and big changes very close to the dates that are shifting them up or down. This is not a new dynamic. I remember going to a presentation by one of the other VFX houses about an early MCU movie, and people were talking about how they were getting pixel fucked. That's a term we used in, use in the industry when the client will nitpick over every little pixel. Even if you never notice it, a client might say, quote, this is not exactly what I want, unquote, and keep you working at it. But they, will ha- they have no idea what they want. So they'll be like, can you just try this? Can you just try that? They'll want you to change an entire setting, an entire environment pretty late in the movie. The main problem is most of Marvel's directors aren't familiar with working with visual effects. A lot of them have just done little indies at the Sundance Film Festival and have never worked with VFX. They don't know how to visualise something that's not there yet, that's not on set with them. So Marvel often starts asking for what we call final renders. As we're working through a movie, we'll send work-in-progress images that are not pretty, but show where we're at. Marvel often asks for them to be delivered at much higher quality very early on, and that takes a lot of time. Marvel does that because its directors don't know how to look at the rough images early on and make judgement calls. But that is the way the industry has to work. You can't show something super pretty when the basics are still being fleshed out. The other issue is when we're in post-production. We don't have a director of photography involved. So we're coming up with the shots a lot of the time. It's, it causes a lot of incong- incongruity. Uh, a good example of what happens in these scenarios is the battle scene at the end of Black Panther. The physics are completely off. Suddenly the characters are jumping around doing all these crazy moves like action figures in space. Suddenly the camera is doing these motions that haven't happened in the rest of the movie. It all looks a bit cartoony. It hasn't broken the visual language of the, it has broken the visual language of the film. Things things need to change on two ends of the spectrum. Marvel needs to train its directors on working with visual effects and have a better vision out of the gate. The studio needs to hold its directors' feet to the fire to commit to what they want. The other thing is unionization. <laughs> there it is. There it is. You know, like the big U word. Uh, there is a growing movement to do that because it would make, uh, help make sure that the VFX houses can't take bids without having to consider what the impacts would be. Because a lot of the time it's like you get to work on a Marvel show and you'll work on that for cheaper just because it's cool. Some of the problems I mentioned are universal to every show and every project, but you end up doing less over time on other shows. You end up being able to push back more on the directors. When they say something like, hey, I want this, you could be like, this doesn't make sense. Not every client has the bullying power of Marvel. I mean, yeah, you know, I've, it's 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 unionization, bro. That's that's all I that's all I can see to it. That's all that's all I see when it comes to this um, issue. Um, I I am, and this kind of adds to go, goes back to what I was talking about earlier at the start of the show. When I feel like I'm just vibing through life, like I'm I'm so rooted personally in my principles. Um, I, I, I refuse at this point to take bullshit. I, I just do. I refuse to take bullshit. I, I willingly won't take work. I, j- I just straight up won't take work if, if bullshit, ha- if I smell bullshit. That's, that's all. And you know, that's, it is what it is. I'm, um, you know, I haven't officially signed up to the WGA of G of Great Britain, right? So, you know, there's that. Um, and I feel like I, uh, I feel like why it's probably gonna be worth me doing so soon at some point in at some point in time. Um, you know, 
that at this point I just don't feel the need to um, because partly I'm just principled in what I what I feel is worth worthy of my time. Um, <laughs> I'm I, there is no fucking way, no fucking way. I'm working sixty hours a week. It's just not happening. It's just not. It's just not happening. I refuse to work like that. Again, I'm just vibing through life, guys. This rat race shit. I've just never. I've just never felt it. I've never felt it. I understand why it happens. I understand why it exists. I because capitalism, right? I get it. I really do. But I just refuse to play the game. I really do. And I have the privilege of doing that. I really do. I'm not rich. I'm poor as shit. But but I live within my means. Um, and I'm comfortable with that. You know, people. Some people aren't, and I get it. People have food to put on the table. You know, mouse to mouse to feed, all that kind of shit. I get it, but I I just personally would not want to do this. Like, imagine imagine wanting to be a VFX size, and you're just you're just like, oh, I can't I can't wait for the day, and then you're there, you're there, but then you're working sixty hours a week. Is it worth it? You just have to ask yourself that question: Is it worth it? And honestly, I just don't I just don't find that worth it. Not that I don't consider you know my work you know um not that i don't respect my own craft like that where i'm not where you know i'm willing to i'm willing to die for this script no 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 uh you know i i i value my work i do i value my work i value my craft i value my time more than anything i've said that before in this show i value my time more than anything i do this for free what the fuck am i doing here you know what I mean? What am I doing here talking to you on this podcast? What am I doing? I'm just vibing. I'm just talking. I talk about the things I want to talk about on a weekly basis. So it's what it is. But, you know, I just kind of have to ask VFX artists and people that just, you know, get crunched like this. Is it worth it? Game designers, is it worth it? And I know some people will probably, probably wake up one day and they're just like, you know what? It's not worth it. And I respect those people because it requires a lot. It requires a lot to say, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And it might be crushing, and I feel for them at some point. I, I empathize with them in that. Because some people do dream of doing that. Some people do dream of creating games or creating, you know, the greatest animations in visual effects and stuff like that. Some people just are, you know, they really want to do that. But then, they're, but then they're part of this ecosystem that's just toxic as shit. And they can't do anything about it. Unless they become independent. But that will require a lot of, a lot of legwork. Um, so... And I'm just living in the middle. I'm just living in the middle. I'm happy with where I'm at. Um, not to make it about me. But yeah. You guys just... Bro, just unionize. Just big unionize. Because I, I can't imagine doing that. I can't imagine working 60 hours a week. of visual effects in some fashion <laughs> in some ways there's visual effects um so <laughs> i mean i'll put this in tech but it's all you can also label it as art um because digital metal art it's in the title um it's called uh, it's via wired um it's written by jessica rizzo and it's called who will own the art of the future so i don't know if you remember a month or so ago um i don't feel i think it was a long read or, no it wasn't a long read that was gbt3 um but it was, it's by the same people um dali 
um, the 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 kind of uh, AI art renderer or art creator, whatever. Um, that just creates you know nine pictures of any prompt that you put into it, and uh, they give you just you know art basically, um, and just elite graphic design, whatever. Um, but yeah, this is uh, called uh, Who Will Own the Art of the Future, and it's basically about Dali, um, basically granting users the right to commercialize the art from from the prompts, um, which is interesting. So uh, let's jump right in. Uh, when o- a- OpenAI announced last week that its art-making AI system DALI is now m- available in beta, the company also gave users lucky enough uh, to get off the waiting list uh, what appeared to be a great gift. Starting today, uh, in a quote, starting today, the company wrote in a post, users get full usage rights to commercialize the images they create with DALI, uh, including the right to reprint, sell, and merchandise, unquote. To be clear, this doesn't mean OpenAI is relinquishing its own right to commercialize image users create using DALI. Dig into the terms of service and you'll only and you'll find only the promise that uh, quote OpenAI will not assert copyright over content generated by the API for you or your end users, unquote. By preemptively giving users commercial usage rights, OpenAI is sidestepping some of the tricky intellectual property questions raised by this technology, which creates original images in a variety of styles from photorealism to Picasso. Because some of Dali's images are entirely machine-made, with the user contributing only an idea via text prompts, the results are likely not copyrightable at all. That would land them in the public domain, where everyone and no one owns them. Quote-unquote owns them. Images made using the in-painting feature, which allows users to edit images they upload, say, by, say, instructing the AI to insert a smiling corgi into a renaissance tableau of their choosing, could incorporate more or a more expressive user choices. Some images created with the in-painting feature uh, might involve enough distinctly human authorship uh, to qualify for copyright protection, but others might not. While exciting, while exciting OpenAI's commercial use announcement uh, may remove some of the pressure artists ought to be putting on the law to clarify and expand the bounds of copyrightable human-slash-machine collaborations. As collaborations become more common, the novel concerns they raise should be confronted head-on. Setting aside the question of copyrightability, OpenAI is signalling to users that they are free to commercialise their Dali images without fear of receiving a cease and desist letter from a company that, if it wanted to, could hire a team of lawyers to annihilate them over, quote, a portrait photo of a parrot sipping a fruity drink uh, through a straw in Margaritaville, unquote. Uh, but the platform platform giveth and the platform taketh away. The terms of service also puts, uh, put users on notice that OpenAI, quote, may change these terms or suspend or terminate your use of the services at any time, unquote. So the sword of Dam- sword of Damocles is that the is that the term that am I am I saying that right in this definition? I forget the complete definition of it. I think I'm I'm not sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, if Dali and technologies like it are widely adopted, the the ramifications for artistic production itself could be far-reaching. Artists who come to rely on Dali will be left with nothing if OpenAI decides to reassert reassert its rights. While relatively few artists incorporate AI into their practice today, it's easy to imagine future generations associating creativity with giving a simple command to a machine and being delighted by the surprising results. Public school systems are already replacing textbooks with digital content. Programs uh, that have retained something resembling arts education could well be tempted to skip the mess and expense of watercolor class 
and turn to AI image uh, generators once those become more widely accessible and affordable. Imagine uh, being a teacher, right? And you have access to this and you do art class and you're just like the only art teacher in, in you know, the region that does it, that has it. It's like, guys, do you want to you you play with OpenAI for like an hour? Like, the kids would have the best fucking time. That would be great. That would be amazing. Um, there are other reasons to be Trump, and that will give him a lot of experience, but not not experience, but a lot of inspiration. Because when you just see that shit, you know, you you that would that would inspire a kid, honestly. I can imagine. Um, like just if you just form a class around that and just go, here's um, give me a prompt, boom, here's the prompt, and then uh, and then you know, try and create your own version for an hour. Like you know, that would that helps. That helps creativity. That helps um, inspire kids. I I I, I would imagine. Anyway, there are other reasons to be troubled by the prospect of tech companies like OpenAI controlling the major means of artistic production in the future. Rightly wary of the technology being used to create deepfakes and other harmful generations, OpenAI bans political content along with content that is, quote, shocking, sexual, or hateful, to name just a few of the company's capacious uh, categories of forbidden images. While great artists have always found ways to use limitations to their advantage, much of our most trenchant and uh, essential visual art would be inconceivable under OpenAI's content restrictions. Uh, Peter, Sa- Peter Saul's uh, pop grotesque presidential portraits could be deemed too political. Philip Guston's uh, engagement with Ku Klux Klan imagery might be considered too hateful. D- Goddamn. David, David Wojnarowicz's AIDS-era outrage uh, too shocking, and Carl Walker's violent antebellum silhouettes too sexual. Dolly's restricted visual vocabulary is deliberately benign and accordingly rather impoverished. In its current form, Dolly is is an impressive toy, not ultimately a medium for significant cultural expression. Should platform, platforms like Dolly become more mainstream, uh, they could f- also foreclose the development of new individual styles. Dolly can produce, quote, a, t- a sea otter in the style of a uh, of girl with a pearl earring by Johannes Vermeer, and a room full of giant sloths all waving uh, towards a viewer painted in a style like Andy Warhol. But Dolly can't tell the user what their style of sloth or sea otter looks like. Figuring that out is hard work that uh, every artist has to do for themselves. Is themselves a word? Themselves. Like I've heard themselves and thems- themselves. I just, I don't think I've ever seen that typed out. T H E M S E L F. Can you say it like that? Hmm. Anyway, uh, it's fitting that Dali's name is a portmanteau, is that how you say it? Uh, meant to vote the artist Salvador Dali and the titular hero of the Pixar film Wally, Wally, whatever. Uh, Dali was a surrealist who trafficked in intensity, personal iconography of dreams. Wally is a trash compacting robot who spends his day sifting through detri- the detritus of a failed civilization. <laughs> oh gosh, detritus, I love that word. Uh, Dali represents the triumph of the latter mode of artistic production over the former. Right now, artists using traditional mediums hold copyright over their work by default. If the future of art is one in which artists only own their work on any given day because some mercurial tech executive didn't wake up that morning and change their mind, our culture is in trouble. So yeah, I mean, I... I I mean, you can immediately see where this is going, right? Just the means of production, means of artistic production. Oh, by the way, uh, Jessica Rizzo is an attorney with uh, the law firm Montgomery McCracker Walker and Rhodes. <laughs> she writes about art, technology, and the law. I just chuckled at that because 
Montgomery McCracken Walker and Rose is just perfect law firm name. Just like law firm names is literally just just out just just a bunch of fucking surnames and they're always just great. Like it's never it's never regular. So it's always just what was that what, what was one of them? McCracken? Like come on, bro. It's just you get these names. I, I I love just the reason I love Suits so much as a TV show is just Pearson and Pearson Spectre is just so G. Just it's such a G fucking name like Pearson Spectre. It's just it's just a boss name. Anyway, um, you know you, it's easy to see where this is going, right? I don't feel like I even need to read the article to even you know um for you to understand where this could go. Um, the fact that they can just change the terms and services at any time is daunting and honestly if i was an artist i'm not an artist in that fashion i don't draw i don't do graphic design in any in any fashion the closest i would get to using dali is just use it for inspiration like don't use it for that don't use it and commercialize it yourself because there could easily just come a point where they were just like yeah sars now you know what i mean and just all the money goes to like every, every time someone cops it it goes to us it goes to it goes to us like they could easily do that. They could just wake up one day and change that rule and just go, yeah, it's all ours now. All, all the money you got, yeah, give it that, give it that. <laughs> all the revenue, uh, all the all the royalties that you get off that, yeah, give it that, yeah, 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 yeah. Pass that here, bro. Yeah, and I mean, just it's easy. It's too easy. It's too easy. And I just feel artists should just step away from that. Um, regardless if they can do it now, the fact that they may not be able to do it in the future, just add, yeah, I don't know. It scares the shit out of me. So I'm just like, yeah, don't bother. Don't even think about it. Don't even bother commercializing that shit. Just use it for inspiration. And I feel like it's I feel like it's perfect for inspiration. If I was an artist, I'd be just like, okay, yeah. That'd be that'd be yeah, that's fun. Just just, you know, throw out some random shit. Um, you know, throw out a few prompts, you know, spend an hour looking up prompts, maybe, you know, download a couple, you know, just have it as a mood board, bruv mood board that's all it is bro just use it as a mood board oh wow just yeah that's it just use it as a fucking mood board you know that'd be great just do that just don't 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 think about it too hard bro just don't think about it too hard don't try and commercialize it i that's what i would do anyway i just i just don't want to face that 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 it's just it's a sword of damocles is it not let me look up sword of damocles because I, I need to I'm th- I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, am I right? I think I am, but I'm not quite sure. So I just want to look it up right quick. Let me let me look up Sword of Damocles. Damocles meaning. There you go. There we go. Let's look this up right quick. So I'm right because I feel like it is the, the exact thing. Um, used to refer and it to an extremely precarious situation. Yeah, it is. It is. A, it is that. Yeah, in Greek mythology, the courtier Damocles was forced to sit beneath a sword suspended by a single hair. To emphasise the instability of the king's of a king's fortunes, literally it. That's literally it. That is literally what we're talking about here. That is literally it. Alright, so I mean, guys, just, just, just don't bother, bro. Just don't bother. Just just keep just use it as inspiration. Maybe you know, mood board that shit, and you know, I don't know. Just just don't 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 use it for an album cover. Just don't think. Just don't bother. I just unless it's like a free mixtape, then you know, have fun with it, have 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 a blast. But just don't bother. If you if you're making money off that artwork in any way, I just wouldn't even bother. I just I just I just I it was it's just it's literally the sword of Damocles scaring the shit out of me. I just wouldn't even sit on the fucking throne. Just don't bother. Just don't bother. However, ladies and gentlemen, we shall leave it there. 
from the Fifth Film Podcast Network. I've been Charlie Taylor and this has been Moss Good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for the bit to use. Find both links, both of their links in the full show notes. Thanks to Nappy Hire, friend of 5e Nappy Hire. For the bit to use, charismatic for the interview. I need to get him on the pod. I, I remember asking him uh, at the start of the year and he was like, uh, excuse the plane. He was just like, yeah, yeah, I'm down, I'm down, I'm down. I'm, I'm, I might be releasing science, so we'll do it near then. And then he released science and then I, I think, I, I guess I'll spoke to him up, but I don't hear up, so... Anyway, <laughs> is what it is. Thanks to thanks to find the link of all show notes. You know, you know the vibes. And with that said, as the plane goes past me, I uh, hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. But until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.